Welcome back to the Out of the Dust Season 2 podcast, a student-run podcast out of the Sacramento State University. My name is Shelby Stepper, a second-year public history grad student. This podcast focuses on bringing history out of the dust, (laughs) pun intended. For this podcast this week, I have interviewed a living history interpreter. Yes, you heard that correctly, a full-time living history interpreter. Having a job in history isn't just about teaching in a classroom. It's about teaching the public in a public setting. Hi. Hi, Shelby. It's nice to meet you. Uh, but it's it's great to finally talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. I'm really excited. Um, yeah. So do you mind uh, maybe introducing yourself a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Nicole Brown. And I am a professional character interpreter. So literally what that is, um, is that I portray people of the past who are not myself, usually somewhere between the mid 18th century to early 19th century, um, to really help us, uh, or for me within my craft, to get guests at historic and cultural sites, uh, to think critically and maybe provoke them to think differently about topics in American history, right? So getting them to think beyond history kind of being uh, on a train track, that it's inevitable and that everything had to have happened at the time that it did, otherwise it would never have happened. Um, But rather getting them to think that, or understand that history is made by people and their choices. And so getting them to meet different people of the past and understand how choices led to the history that we have um, and, and think critically about our present and hopefully our future. Oh, that like spoke to my soul. <laughs> I'm so glad. It's a big ask, right? So no pressure. <laughs> no, not at all. Like it's just, you feel like there's certain people that can portray those living history members a little bit better mm. or to let the audience grasp it. Yeah, I th- I think the interesting thing about character interpretation, when I kind of got started, it was one of those things that, sorry, that's my dog. It was one of those things that kind of, I was told that it was a like, an, an, you either had to have it or you didn't. And there are a lot of people who have a wonderful ability to interpret with people. But what I've learned recently, especially in the past few years, is that it is trainable. You can teach people how to do it, but they still have to know how to read the audience and kind of yeah. understand the world. But it is, it is, it's an odd occupation, right? It's when people tell me, <laughs> when people ask, you know, what I do and I say I'm a professional character interpreter and they're like, what is that? Is that a yeah. real actor or are you talking as yourself? And it's not really any of those things, but it kind of is all of those things. But definitely, I, I, I love doing it because it does. It makes people think about history in a really different way, ideally, mm-hmm. and maybe through a very different lens. And it does require a very specific skill set, but the skill set is learnable, I think, right? It's not just this, like, unknown entity in the ether. I- what, like, actually got you onto this career path? Because what I read about your bio, you wanted yeah. to be a scientist, and then you got your degree in theater, I did. Yeah, that was right. So I went to an all math and science high school and my parents definitely thought I was either going to be a computer programmer or a marine biologist. Wow. So when I came to them and said I wanted to be a performer, they went, oh, (laughs) and they've they've been very supportive. I think ultimately what brought me on this path is my background is in performance, but I've always had a passion for history Mm. and I've always had a passion for asking questions at history sites that it's not maybe that I shouldn't have asked them, but my parents basically told me I could ask any question I want as long as it was polite. So I would always go and ask these questions about like, 
our history and our past that people maybe were kind of unprepared <laughs> to respond to, um, whether it was about slavery or religion or men or take your pick. And from there, I eventually started working at a cultural site. I work at a couple of different cultural sites myself. Um, in Virginia, I've worked in New York. Um, I've spoken in France, worked in Chicago, Kentucky, a lot of different places. But I, I ultimately, I had a passion for history and I'd gotten out of school. I went to William & Mary and I got a theater degree and I was like, what am I going to do with this? And I started working at a cultural site as a summer job, right? I was like, I'll just do this for the summer and that'll be that. And I discovered I absolutely fell in love with history and sharing it through storytelling and um, theatrical intent, but also historical content intent. And from there, it kind of just grew into this field of character interpretation. I can say a lot on, because there's a lot of different opinions on what character interpretation is. And actually, there's a lot of debate within historic and the public history community on how to do it correctly, quote unquote. But my passion came for, I, I loved theater. I went to William & Mary. I loved history. I needed to find a job after uh, I graduated and I kind of fell into it by accident, but it is the best accident I think that's ever happened to me. <laughs> so that's kind of my background. I have my dream job right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is really weird to say that I can work as a, as a character interpreter full-time. That is unusual. There are a lot of cultural sites across the United States where you can do it. It's just um, challenging to get the resources that you need. So I, I am lucky that I've met a lot of um, public historians and professionals who have trained me to have some of the resources that I need to work. But I fell in, I, I suppose I fell into it by accident, but not really, because my passions have always been history and theater. And so it kind of makes sense that the two ultimately blended together in this narrative format that's also um, thematic in nature and bigger picture, right? Oh, awesome. So you were talking about like the debate of uh, public historians, regular guests of going to living history sites and then living yeah. history characters. Right. Um, you want to talk a little bit about what that debate is for people who don't really understand it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll try to be clear and succinct because this is something <laughs> I think about a great deal. Yeah. So I think there's even a debate amongst public historians in academia of how to deal with sharing our history, right? I'm encountering this myself right now. I just applied to go back to graduate school uh, while working full time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And one of the reasons I w wanted to is because um, as, as a public historian or working in a public field, we, the, the motivation behind that is to share American, for me, especially at the cultural site in the United States, American history and get people, get it to serve as a call to action, right? For people mm -hmm. to think about what they want their future to be. At its core, I think academia probably wants to do the same thing, but how we approach it is very different through um, educational programming in a public history site as opposed to writing academic papers. Diametric, I don't know if I want to say antagonistic, I think I would say diametric relationship between academia and public history. We sometimes don't use the same shared language, either in methodology or in approach or in execution. And ultimately, the only disservice situation is to that of the guest, right? Because the guest walks in and whether it's a museum or whether it's a college or whether they're reading an academic paper or they're talking, they're trying to understand history. Yeah. So where I'm coming from, I use both an academic approach, ideally, 
well as a public history approach in, in how we know and understand guests to convey to them if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so what I'm kind of like, what we've been told about public historians and then regular historians, there's like a little right. gap between the people who are getting their master's degree in public history and people who are getting their master's degree in history. They like right. to say that the history historians, they're the ones in the ivory towers looking down, right. writing their history, yep. not giving it out to the public. Well, right. we, on the other hand, are giving it out to the public and trying to make it accessible for people who are 10 years old or people who are in their 80s to like understand. Right. And I think at its core, academia and public history are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to both share history and share and create it responsibly. But that's kind of where I come into play as a character interpreter, because a lot of, even within, you know, you historians, you have academic historians in the sense of formal academic setting. You also have that dichotomy between public historians who speak as themselves, character interpreters, right? So what I'm trying to do as a character interpreter is through a massive amount of research on specifically the topics I tend to cover are in the 19th century, religion, slavery, education, and women's history, and their intersection in our American story. Yeah. (laughs) And convey that in a public history setting as not myself as a character. But to do that, you kind of have to overcome several hurdles. The first one is, are you really an academic, right? And, and you get that question from a lot of different places, not just from guests. The second is, how am I going to do this responsibly and share history in a provocative way, but not provocative in terms of insulting, but provocative in terms of um, to get someone to think critically. Yeah. Um, with also simultaneously, not just sharing a bigoted or a racist opinion, especially with the topics that I delve into. And then in addition to those barriers, you get some barriers from the guests of which when as they normally see somebody in costume, they think you're a reenactor and character interpretation, professional character interpretation and reenactment are, they have similarities, but they are distinctly dissimilar. In tandem with, (laughs) as a woman, I mean, as a white woman, I have privileges in how I interpret. I know that. But I also get the barrier of like, oh my gosh, you're so cute. Can I take a picture with you? But I don't really want to talk to you. Just, I just want to take a picture with you. And you have to overcome that with a guest as well. So there's a lot of things going on with professional character interpretation for me. Um, It's knowing how to be an academic and how to um, be abreast of current research, how to cite your sources properly. Am I using the correct style, right? It's how, as a public historian, do I take a JSTOR article, right, and turn it into a program that's, that I can disseminate to somebody and know the audience well enough to know, you know, I'm going to get likely mostly 40-year-olds here who may have some background in American history, but on average have this knowledge level as opposed to I'm talking to a 10-year-old, the same content, how do I curate that? Or the same t- topic, how do I curate that? In addition to... Sometimes when you're in costume, people make value, people always make value judgments about you, whether you're in costume or not. But when you're in costume in a cultural site, people make value judgments about what you may or may not be willing to talk about or are going to talk about before you even open your mouth. There's a lot going on. (laughs) Uh, So how long have you been working for Colonial Williamsburg? So again, I'm not here to talk about my employer. Yeah, um, I'm gonna to talk. So I'll talk broadly to how long I've been a character yeah. interpreter. 
But for me, I've been a professional character interpreter um, doing contract work for six years, I want to say. F five years, almost six. Um, and I've portrayed a lot of different people. Um, I've portrayed Martha Jefferson at Monticello. Um, I've portrayed Ann Wager, right, who is the teacher of the first official school for official school, depending on who you talk to, for African Americans in Virginia. I've portrayed different early 19th century women um, and, and earlier and beyond. So I, I've, I've been doing this professionally for about five and a half, six years. All right. So what is one of your favorite portrayals? Like, do you have one that still sticks in your heart? None. I, mm, I have to say Martha Jefferson initially, because I learned a lot about learning an audience and knowing an audience, human nature, how to deal with a charged last name and navigating that while also being honest about the history and what is knowable and researchable as opposed to what people deem knowable and researchable. So kind of covering all of that, Monticello reached out to me and said, hey, we're doing a special program. Are you interested in training Jefferson, um, Thomas Jefferson's wife, who they got married um, uh, in 1772 and they lived together for 10 years before she passed away, before she turned 33. And I said, yeah, I'm very interested. <laughs> but from what I had seen, I didn't really like her before I started portraying her because I was looking at the bias of other historians and saying, there's really nothing to learn. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, I actually was awarded a fellowship at the International Center of Studies to research her. There is a lot on this woman, any other woman I've portrayed. We have medical records. We have um, account books. I have her entire clothing inventory. And so what I learned very early on was this person, not through anybody's fault as a historian or a public historian, but they were looking through their own biases that at whatever point in time, this article or book or take your pick of things I was reading or researching came out and maybe had missed some things that I was able to contribute. So that's one of the main things I learned from her, which really then pushed us into Anne Wade. And I was all the people I've ever portrayed. Martha Jefferson holds a special place in my heart because I learned very early on how to portray a character with her and specifically how to, how to discuss race and racism in this country. Oh, yeah. And unpack that with guests and the reality of that, which is so important. Um, and that's really what led me to, I think of all the people I've portrayed, Anne Wager is the one I'm most passionate about because she is so contradictory, especially to a 21st century mind, right? Here's this woman who ran a school for African-Americans, but it was not abolitionist. It was a pro-slavery school. But the students at the school didn't necessarily, in fact, pretty definitively didn't believe in the pro-slavery aspect. But she's, she, so she believes that stu her students have souls, but she believes the institution of slavery is also acceptable. Like, that's a lot to navigate, right? <laughs> you portray that out to the public too, without- Right, and portray it to the public both authentically and accurately, but in a way to get them to think critically rather than just saying something racist or saying something yeah. offensive and having somebody use that then as a platform to say, now I get to say whatever I want. So, 
I think Ann Wager for me, because she is such a challenge, here is this woman that she's caught up in the middle of the school and how religion and education and slavery intersect. And because it's her life on a day-to-day basis, you can't look away from it. You can't ignore it. You can't talk about something else. And in fact, it would be a disservice not to talk about it. Uh, I learned a lot about how to be comfortable with discussing difficult or challenging or uncomfortable topics with the general public. And, and I have to be honest, the general public surprised me in meeting me there. <laughs> um, and when I say general public, I don't just mean adults. I mean kids. Yeah. I mean, you, you learn a lot about how to talk about these topics, again, whether they're 10 or they're 40 or they're 80. So Mrs. Mrs. Jefferson's definitely somebody who taught me early on, oh, this is how I approach methodology with character interpretation. But Ann Wager taught me, this is how I do something meaningful with that methodology in a different way. How I get people to think about their past and how race, education, and slavery are part of that. How that informs their present. And ideally, if I'm doing my job well, because I do step in and out of character almost always when I use this woman, how do I get them to think about history as a call to action? How can I improve the world that I live in? while still understanding my past. So have you had any negative comments or reviews during while you're playing and wager? Yeah, I have. Um, you know, you have people who are very upset that not aggrandizing an idea of history that they would like. I've had other people who I've had to stop the interpretation because they're like, I'm really frustrated with this woman. And I can't get beyond that. That's why when I say this, I really mean it. One of the most important things with character interpretation is knowing your audience and knowing how, and I'm sure you know this, knowing how to read your audience, right? You can tell from somebody's body language when they may need a a different medium to approach a topic. So I've, and I've had this happen before, you know, I was doing a presentation as Mrs. Wager and this, and I'm in the Q and A section. This woman raises her hand and she's like, I understand how she could believe these two things, that enslaved individuals have souls, but also the institution of slavery is acceptable. And this is where reading your audience is so important. And I said, you know, this is a great question. Would you like to talk to Mrs. Wager? Or would you like to talk to me? Because they're two different people. And she went, I would like to talk to you. <laughs> but that's so, it's so important to give yeah. guests both the benefit of the doubt can grapple with difficult topics and for you to know your audience enough to know how to read them to where they need to converse to feel their needs are met right and not in the sense of feeling happy-go-lucky or comfortable necessarily but feeling comfortable enough to to discuss difficult topics and knowing do I do this in, in third person as myself or in first person as Ann Wager and and um, with yours, because you're in, in where the history of the United States like have started with the colonies. Right. Um, what I'm dealing with is Old Sacramento. The earliest history that we have that I deal with is 1848. Sure, which is still early, but it's a yeah. very different time period, and right? Was, and they're very different things. Yeah, and I portray two different people. The first one is um, a French woman who came over, and she became pretty wealthy, making her businesses like that. She opened up different restaurants. Oh, second, very cool. A second millionaire in, in Sacramento. And then wow. we, we do night tours, which are 21 and over. And we talk about, it's called after hours. And we yeah. get to talk about 
the gunfights, the knife fights, like the seedier underbelly of Sacramento that right. we can't talk about in front of kids. Right. And you do have to know. And that's why I will say, again, I can talk about any topic, whether it's an adult or a child, but you do have to know where to draw the line. Right. I completely agree with you. So even the after hour where like people want to hear about prostitution, they want to hear about everything. Right. I, I portray a prostitute in that one. Uh, mm. Heigl, and she's a German immigrant who came over and she's very, very profitable in Sacramento. But when I get into her, I've mm. had ladies who are so uncomfortable that you just have to break character and right. That's it. Just Q and a way. Cause I feel like they don't, they shut off from the history. Yeah. But it, isn't it interesting too? Cause I completely agree with you. You have to know how to read your audience in that way. I find it so interesting though, because I think they shut off because it is so personal, right? They're yeah. so invested in the story. They're so invested in the idea of this person that's in front of them. And if you've done your research well and you, for me, I tend to not script things. I tend to thematically lay them out. So I have a theme, goal, and objectives. And then literally based off of the body language I'm getting from an audience, I know, okay, we're going to move into this sub-theme and that sub-theme. But people get so invested in the idea of the person in front of them being not only a real person, the person you're portraying, but a person who's still alive, mm-hmm. that you do sometimes have to take a step back with the guest because they get so connected that then they have to disconnect, right? Yeah. And so you, you really do have, you're absolutely right. You really do have to know how to toe that line and where to draw it so that you still are connected to those guests and they're still connecting with their history in a meaningful way by the end of the presentation. Right. And it's hard. It's really hard. Oh, it's really hard. Cause it's only, I've only been doing it for two and a half years. Uh, it's still a long time though. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's part-time just cause full-time student. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, but I also, I participate in reenactments in Butte, Montana. So oh, very cool. From Montana, we go to Bannock, which is an old gold mining boom town. Mm-hmm. It was there for about 30 years and then it's ghost town now. But once a year, about 6,000 people come to the small ghost town for a weekend. Wow. And me and my family are part of the reenactors that get to do that. But, but I imagine that that's for very different parameters, right? So different that it's yeah. just dressed up historically accurate, not really right, right, right. I Holy get that style historically accurate, and mm-hmm. it's just to entertain the people. But they don't really. Only like three of the old men know their history. <laughs> the rest of them that. are just there to wear the guns and shoot blanks and be Hollywood cowboys. Right. And I feel like your examples that you just gave me, Shelby, are the perfect examples for me of the difference between reenactment and character interpretation, right? Not that one is better than the other. I really don't think because if you're doing a really great reenactment and you have, especially for us on the East Coast, there's a lot of Red War reenactment. Mm-hmm. If you're actually showing out how a battle played out, that can be very powerful. I still remember going to Gettysburg as a kid and seeing a reenactment and being like, oh my gosh, is this really happening? That's powerful, but it's very different than a character interpretation that's either scripted or thematically outlined and researched in a different way, right? And approached in a different way. Yeah. So since you said you've been doing it for five to six years, um, have you had mentors or people who have helped you learn how to do your thinet instead of scripting it and making it? Yeah. I think for me... So I've had so many wonderful mentors. I have had 
um, interpreters who are pastors, actually, man, if you want to watch a really great unscripted interpretation, look at a, a theologically sound pastor who's both theologically and historically wow. give uh, an 18th century um, sermon. <laughs> That's really amazing. Wow. Uh, and it's a lot of work. It's a, and he, they, you know, this particular individual makes it look easy, but it's really hard. So I've had a lot of, I've had people who are based in telling, give me advice and suggestions, but above all, I really feel it's important for me to mention this. The National Association of Interpretation, I'm, I'm a certified um, interpreter, certified interpretive guide through the National Association of Interpretation, has really helped in me formulating how I have chosen to develop my craft. So right now, that organization is still kind of figuring out what a character interpretation medium might be, but they, they do essentially interpretive guide training for all different kinds of cultural, historic, and um, national parks sites, right? So whether you're an environmental interpreter or a, a character interpreter or a cultural site interpreter, they kind of pr provide an all-encompassing training. And I really like that because it taught me to think about cultural history and and public history structured, right? So kind of what I was saying at the beginning of it's not this unknown entity and you just guess yeah. and go. I am the kind of person, and this, I'm curious, honestly, to know what you think after you see my interpretation. I'm a very structured, outlined person who tries to make it look like I have not structured or outlined anything <laughs> <laughs> when I do a performance. Mm -hmm. um, but I do because what I realized through this training is that, oh, if I'm trying to get guests to think bigger picture, especially if I have a difficult character or a controversial character like Anne Wager or a challenging character, right? Then talking about things in broad themes allows me to get to the points I need to go to, allowing the personality of that character to come through. And so that's where I felt the help has been for me in that uh, specifically just to speak on um, Anne, right? Say I want to talk about the relationship between slavery and religion. And I know Anne Wager highlights the relationship between slavery and religion for the 18th century world or 18th century Virginia. That's a thematic statement, right? From there I can, ha, ah, now I use what I know about Anne personally to craft all the sub themes and where I want to go. And, you know, I'm not quite sure how the audience is going to react to this. And so for me, that training has been so useful as a guide because it taught me how to think bigger picture while still dealing with history through the eyes of one person. Because it's really, really hard. I'm sure you know this. When you're sharing history through the eyes of one person, the strength of character, and all of a sudden the history becomes a lie. The weakness is that it's bias. Oh, yeah. Not just because of you, the interpreter, but the perspective of the person you're portraying. If you're a um, woman, in right. wherever you're at, it's super biased where you're allowed to only say what you're thinking. But I always mm -hmm. step out of character and be like, okay, this is 1800 Sacramento where you know, females were allowed to own money and own land and right. by the end of the 1800s, they were allowed to vote, but right. there's also downfall and then you have to step back in. So there's just- Exactly. Yeah. And it's the same thing because a lot of the people I portray, they're like, there's nothing wrong with the world I live in. Everything's fine. <laughs> and so you have to step out and be like, well, there actually were some things that were problematic outside of this person's perspective. Yeah. 
And it is, I think, the greatest strength and the greatest flaw that it's personal is its greatest strength, that it's personal is its greatest flaw. <laughs> and that's why learning how to think about history thematically for me or how I program thematically is helpful because then I can help a guest navigate, aha, I like this aspect of this character and I don't maybe connect to this aspect, but I get what they're trying to talk about. Now I'm going to make connections in my own head of how I feel about these things, right? When you see your audience click, like that aha, yes. that just oh. makes me feel so amazing. Like you're just, I'm doing my job right. Right. It's such, a, and it's a great connection. And it's, and that's actually a really, another thing that I love about it is that they talk about um, informal feedback. So literally knowing how to test your guest without giving them a quiz and saying, what did you learn? Yeah. By having a theme and goal, if I then have a and a with them and they say, well, I learned this, that is, a, or based on the questions they ask, I can tell, aha, it went right back to my theme. I can actually gauge in that moment if they actually had that aha moment, right? Because you can see when somebody's had an aha moment, but I also love when you can articulate what that aha moment was for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, for me, that's been so invaluable, but a lot of it too, is just practice, right? Like anything, you know, you watch a, a fantastic pianist or a beautiful cellist, you watch Yo-Yo Ma, right? And you think, wow, no way I could ever be that good. And yes, he is gifted and he is a genius, <laughs> but he also practiced mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> and I think it's, it's, I wonder if you've encountered this Shelby, where a lot of people are like, I put on the costume and then I'm ready, right? Yeah. As opposed to, I did a bunch of research and I spent hours in the library and I read a new book every single week and I have an 18 page bibliography for this character. And then I got into the costume after researching the costume and started talking. We have different stages of tour guides. There's about yeah. 20 different tour guides, uh, men, women, young and to old and people who've been there for 10 years and people who've been there for a year. And you encounter a lot of people who have written, they almost can pretty much write a book on their character. Oh yeah. And it's it's a a master's course unto itself. Pretty much. Or there's people who have like five characters underneath their belt. (laughs) Just like, I'm good with my two and I still have (laughs) to do on just those two people. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work though, to build up an individual, right? It's, and especially for like the prostitutes that that's the part where I'm because I was almost doing a thesis project through the Sac History Museum. I was going to build an interpretive tour. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I was really excited about it because I was going to do an interpretive tour out of the Sac History Museum, focusing on Sacramento prostitution from the 1850s to the 1870s and how they helped shape Sacramento's economy. Oh man, that's such a great thematic statement. (laughs) So I helped, uh, like with just my research with my one, one person, I was like, this could be good getting into the research. Mm. It's just, there wasn't enough for a, the- mm. for a thesis. There's enough to do a tour. There's not enough for sure. A so I'm still going to do the tour and give it to the museum, but yeah. I'm doing the, the 10, 10 series podcast uh, about the Sackation Museum and the nuts and bolts of how it's run. Love it. So but, but at its core, that's interesting that you bring that up, right? I have enough to do an interpretation, but not enough for an academic paper. Yeah. I feel like that speaks perfectly to the dichotomy between public history and academic history, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to get to the same thing, but what you may be able to use in each medium or what is considered acceptable in each medium is a little bit different. That's actually why I'm going back 
to graduate school. That's what essentially I'm going to be trying on with my thesis on. How do we make these two things Go together. work together? Right. How do, how do I academically justify um, through anthropology and sociology as well as written record and primary sources and archives what I already know as a character interpreter, right? Oh. Through research, right? And it's, but it's hard. It's yeah. hard to say, I have enough, but I don't have enough. <laughs> well, that's, I had to, cause I really wanted to do it. I was talking the director of the museum, super into it. The city is yeah. really into it. I've been doing all my research for the past couple months. And I'm just like, I don't have enough for historiography. I don't mm. have enough for methodology. And for the historiography, we need like a couple sources so that I can argue. Sure. Right. I'm only able to make a six page historiography with, uh, I found two sources and both sure. of them are master's thesis. So, mm. <laughs> and I, I totally, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. The one advice I would give here, actually both for character interpretation and for what you're doing, it may take time to find those sources. Don't give up yet. Yeah. Um, it may be actually after you complete your thesis. <laughs> but I, I encountered that with Ann Wager. So when I was, when I took on this role, I was given a half sheet of information. We have n- absolutely nothing in her own hand right? Nothing she left, the written record. So how can I interpret her and make value judgments or have her make value judgments based on this limited information? Well, I'm very stubborn. This actually goes back to what I learned from from Martha Jefferson of Mm -hmm. there's likely stuff out there. It's just, you have to approach it a different way. And I just came back um, last January, I went to the University of Oxford for two weeks and I came back with about 8,000 pages of data on the Bray School that I did not know was there (laughs) because it was there, it was in the archive, but the archivists had never talked to the public historians. And so no one had connected that what was at Oxford could be used at Colonial Williamsburg Mm -hmm. or it could be used with my research in general, right? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, Um, it's very wild. It's weird. (laughs) The little nooks and crannies. Uh, What I have with so the person, uh, her name is Joanna Heigl. She, mm-hmm. the German immigrant who came over here, um, she married twice. Both of them, her husbands were like dead, so she widowed. And then by the time she left Sacramento, retired in San Francisco. And when she passed away, she was very like philanthropic, even for uh, Madame. So she gave yeah. her, the rest of her money to the orphan, German orphanage and the German elderly, elderly home. And I just, I love that. That was just like, they what a compelling that. story. Yeah. Right. But making a historiography was just like, okay, I still want to do the tour and I still want to give that to the, to the, to the museum and yeah, yeah. like, let's talk about prostitutes. Like it's a, it's a nitty gritty, like people don't want to talk about it, but they're fascinated about it. Yes. I encounter that too with my topics of, I don't want to talk about it, but I actually want to talk about it all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so with your encounters of you're talking about slavery and you're talking right. about his in your, it's also so close to home where you're from. Yeah, it really is. Especially when I'm interpreting in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you manage the emotions with the people who you're encountering and also like your own? That's a good question. Um, and that's part of the craft, right? I can study everything in the world, but I have to know how to read an audience to know when to bring things out Mm -hmm. and also when to be aware of people's biases, right? And 
and for myself as well to learn where my biases are, right? I grew up in Virginia. I grew up in Northern Virginia. I grew up in a very diverse community. I did not have the same experience that I later encountered when I moved to Southern Virginia. And um, portraying Ann Wager, I've actually learned a lot about myself too, of where are my flaws and where are my weaknesses in understanding the institution of slavery and learning about my white privilege mm-hmm. and how that still factors into the story actually of Ann Wager. But her white privilege literally, because she was a, a free white English woman, made it possible for her to run a business. And the business was teaching enslaved individuals to be enslaved. <laughs> Which is such a powerful and touching subject. It's, yeah. And, and people connect to it deeply because the topic is still relevant. Mm-hmm. Slavery, right? Or race or racism, any of those things. So for me, what I've had to learn is twofold. I really have had to learn how to read my audience and know everything I can on this topic. Um, I said I read one new book every week. That is because I really do. Um, on my desk right now are three, five books, actually. I have read three times, and I reread them. Mastering Christianity by Travis Glasson, Moral Capital by Christopher Leslie Brown, A Blessed Company by... John K. Nelson, The Price of the Pound of Their Flesh, which I'm trying to remember who wrote it. Uh, oh, it was uh, Diana uh, Ramey Berry. And then um, uh, Colonial Philanthropy, or Religious Philanthropy and Colonial Slavery, which is the only book that's ever been written on the Bray Associates by John Van Horn. I have to know where I get everything from at any given time and be able to cite it at any point in time. Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I'm, because people... Because people will, it's interesting. I find people are willing to talk about the topic, but through their own biases as well as my own, white privilege being a big one, or you know, living in Virginia and, and feeling charged about it, or coming to Virginia and not knowing what to expect. More, more often than not, people are willing to meet you where you are, but when they want to challenge you, you really do have to know this is exactly where I got this topic from. Down to, in some situations, this is, where, this is the page number that it's from. You have to know how to read your audience, but you have to be well-versed. And mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons I'm going back to graduate school, because I've realized there's a lot I don't know, which is great. I love that. But it also means that I shouldn't stop there. That's not an acceptable thing to just say, oh, there's a lot I don't know. Now I'm going to talk to you. That's really irresponsible as a public historian. <laughs> so you, you have to be researching constantly. You have to know your audience and know how to read them to gauge, should I talk to them as Nicole Brown now, or should I talk to them as the character I'm portraying? And you also have to not be afraid. And I say this and I know my bias. I am a small, young, white woman, right? My experience is very different than an African-American colleague or any colleague of color, right? We have to accept that from the get-go. But for me, knowing where my biases are and knowing where I am challenged and where I need to learn more and challenge myself actually really helps when you are encountering a guest that is maybe dealing with this topic for the first time. It is challenging them to meet them where they are and say, I'm going to give you this information and we're not going to equivocate on this, these facts, but I will help you navigate through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways you almost become especially when you're dealing with controversial topics, it's so odd. You almost kind of become like a historian who's also dealing like a trauma historian. 
And I, I don't mean that disingenuously or to equate myself to a therapist. Therapists do a lot of very hard work. I am not a therapist. <laughs> but you do, you do have to almost sit there and be ready to let people sit in it and to process it and to have an academic arsenal, an arsenal of empathy, um, and an arsenal of being aware of culturally what's happening around you at this point in time. You, the interpreter. Mm-hmm. to be able to navigate it, right? I am constantly listening to NPR. NPR is my favorite thing in the world. I listen to it. I, I listen to it every morning so that I know what's going on in the world. You have to know what's going on in the 18th century world, century world. You have to know what's going on in the 21st century world. And then through that, through your knowledge of both, be able to navigate through story and through active listening, especially with a topic like slavery, especially with a combined topic like the relationship between religion and slavery. I have to be very, very knowledgeable on, and then this is one area I'm working on improving as well. Every institution's perspective on the institution of slavery, religious institution, from about 1500 to now. <laughs> so it's, it's a constant struggle. And there are days where I walk away and I think you don't know enough, or you really need to learn more here. This is, you your weakness today, this is where you need to improve. With uh, historic interpretation and what you're doing um, for the living, do you get a lot of biasy from people who don't really understand the amount of work that you actually put into your job? Yeah, but it's never meant in a disrespect, right? And and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation yeah. of, you know, you're dealing with not only how academic history perceives you and how public history perceives you, but as guests perceive you. And the mm-hmm. minute you're in a costume, and for me, I'm a very short, petite white woman, right? They're like, oh my gosh, you're so cute. Are you, are you a part-time student? Do you, is this a job? <laughs> no, and, and they're not trying to be mean. Yeah. What I do is a very specific, very odd job. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you do encounter that. But I think, isn't that a learning opportunity, I guess, to say, yes, this is my job. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Let me tell you a little bit about what I've been reading recently. And I find the where, what I've been reading recently and tying back into academically what I'm working on really starts to drive home for the guest or the visitor. Oh, this is a very specific skill set that I was not aware of. But I find sometimes you naturally do that too when you delve into topics and costume people don't expect, right? Or they don't expect based on looking at you and making a value judgment about you. Interpreting, I've interpreted in a lot of different places, but interpreting, especially in the South, people are like, oh, she's white, she's not going to talk about slavery. And uh, not every guest, but some guests. And so when I open my mouth and any character I portray, I will talk about the institution of slavery. People are like, oh, wait a minute. That was not what I was expecting. Now I'm paying attention more. And now because I'm paying attention a little bit more, I see, oh, you've done more work than I thought somebody who was going to just put on a costume. Put on a costume, um, look pretty. Right. And you do <laughs> encounter that in the interpretive field, like put on a costume and look pretty. And I think there is merit to being dressed accurately. Oh, 100%. Right. But that's not the same as I'm just going to be here for visual appeal. Right? <laughs> I love, I love, and more often than not, and I really mean this, most guests 
at any site, whether it's in New York or it's in Charlottesville or it's anywhere in Virginia or it's in France, most people are willing the minute I open my mouth to say, oh, not what I was expecting, but I'll meet you there. <laughs> uh, but you still do have to, and you know this, right? You still have to overcome the barrier. I would imagine with you, not only with, oh my gosh, you're in a costume and be pretty, but the minute you tell somebody what that person you're portraying their occupation is, especially if it's a prostitute, people mm-hmm. want to make value judgments about you, right? Or value uh-huh. judgments about history through you, right? Oh, no, 100%. And for me, the after hour tour, it's more of a people are having fun and it's not as like an in-depth conversation as I would have liked it. Right. So I portray her with my research that I've done is she's been arrested multiple times in her lifespan of being in Sacramento. Even though she was like a prostitute and a madame who ran like five boarding houses, she was constantly in jail for a public um, intoxication. So I portray my, my, uh, my person as being intoxicated through the entire tour, but I'll break character and I'll be like, okay, so this is why I am. (laughs) I go back into character, but it's an hour and a half tour. So we're, it's a walking hour and a half tour. I got to make sure to keep them entertained (laughs) somehow. Right. Yeah. And that's the challenge, right? With character interpretation. And you have to remember not to data dump on people, right? I know a lot. But that does not mean that everything I know should be in a single program. Right? <laughs> yeah, which is the main reason why I wanted to do that interpretive tour about yeah. being prostitutes in a different version. So I love that. Maybe a night tour, but it also is not going to just be funny and me acting like that certain scope and um, viewpoint. Yeah, no, no, no. You? I, I understand what you're saying, where you know you want to meet the guests where they are. And what their expectation is, but also exceed it, right? Yeah. Beyond what somebody may perceive um, the women you portray as. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important part of character interpretation to exceed expectation rather than just meet it. Yeah. So since you're coming all the way out here to California and to Sac yeah. City, how did you get involved with being in the Shattuck conference? <laughs> so how I got involved was through Tony Bly. Yeah. Um, Antonio Bly, and I'm, I know you know this, but I'll just say it for the sake of the podcast, right? He's the director of the Shattuck and Down Chair. Mm-hmm. And um, Tony and I met while I was presenting at William & Mary, which is one of the scariest things I've ever done. Uh, it was very unnerving to interpret at my alma mater <laughs> uh, as a woman in the Wren building, right? About uh, education. <laughs> uh, yeah. No pressure. Uh, so I was doing a program, uh, actually predominantly for 16 and 17 year olds about education and how we perceive education, what it means. And fortunately the, the person who had invited me to come speak did not tell me Tony was there because I was a huge fan of Tony Bly before I met him. I had read every single article, every single book. I thought he was great. So the person who had, uh, hired me, uh, <laughs> After the program, she brings Tony up and says, there's somebody I really want you to meet. You've been really wanting to meet Tony Bly. This is Professor Bly. And I, my jaw almost fell to the floor. I was so excited. <laughs> and poor Pro- Professor Bly was like, okay. That's <laughs> not really the reaction I was expecting. And I remember distinctly, he was very, he's very specific with his words. And I love that. It's important to be specific with your words. And he'd seen a couple of different people portray Anne Wager over the years. And he said, I really liked your portrayal. Anne has a bit of a bite to her. And I think this goes back to what we were just talking about, exceeding people's expectations. Yeah. Anne was a force of nature, but had 
not always been, everyone brings their own style to the interpretation, right? So I was bringing something he hadn't seen before. And he said, oh, I'm really interested to talk to you more. So we actually presented, he and I and Julie Richter, who's an amazing woman. She's the director of the National uh, Institute for American History and Democracy at William & Mary. We all presented on different perspectives on the Bray School at the Lemon Project, which is an annual conference at William & Mary that deals with William & Mary's um, relationship with the institution of slavery and how we reconcile that. So we presented and it was really amazing. I thought it couldn't get any better. And then Tony called me and said, do you want to present? at the, the um, Shattuck Symposium. And I was elated by this because he, wants, he wanted me, he wants me to talk not only about women and women in colonial Virginia and, and women in, in revolutionary Virginia, right? And I, I know that experience and how we study it is very different on the East Coast as opposed to the West Coast, right? Just by the nature of how yeah, history is. Proximity, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. He said, but I also want you to talk about what you do and the challenges of what you do in the 21st century while you're dealing with an 18th century history. Because what, whether you, you like it or not, 18th century history, all history is relevant. It still connects back to the present, which is why I think it goes back to what we were talking about. If sometimes people need you to step out of character to unpack something because it is so relevant and it is so personal that they have a hard time processing it or accepting that history was just as complicated as my life is now, that it's not all clear cut and all black and white. Yeah, so I remember growing up, history was always a thing. Instead of cartoons, my grandpa and my parents would put on History Channel. When it was- oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, my when, parents too, I was like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, it would put on the History Channel. My grandpa still watched documentaries to this day. But how I viewed history is it's like an interlocking web. It, yes. Mm-hmm. It, like what goes on today, it still is uh, presentable and you can still kind of understand what happened 200 years ago. It all just yes. interlocks together. You just got to figure out how to weave and read that web. Yes. And how to read the web and understand that it is a web rather than a train track. Mm-hmm. And that things that are happening today are still connected to what happened in the past. And what is happening in the present is going to impact the future. It's all tangled together yeah. in a really messy, often very hard to sort through web. <laughs> <laughs> but also fun. Yes. Sometimes. I think so too. <laughs> I, I want history to be fun. It still, it still needs to be relevant and poignant, and we still need to be able to talk about difficult things within the framework of history. But learning about history should be fun, mm-hmm. right, for me. Um, if it's not fun, if you're not engaging people, then they're not... The things I remember from my childhood about history, I remember learning about difficult history as a child, but I remember learning about it in such an engaging way that it still resonates with me, right? I remember I still have a professor, my honors world history teacher in high school. Oh, I love that. She's one of those teachers who was very energetic. We had to do hands-on things. Like we did a trial for Louis XIV. We uh, carved pumpkins and had to find like a inspirational person in history. So my group picked Dr. Seuss. (gasps) I love that. (laughs) The Lorax and... Like she made it to the point where you got so excited about a history that you didn't have to like dread learning it. Yes. Yes. I absolutely relate to that. And I'm sorry. I just moved to another room because no, um, my, my laptop was dying. Um, <laughs> but I agree. If you can make history engaging, I will never forget ever my 10th grade history teacher, Mr. Kelly. And the first day 
we came into world history class, he starts telling a story. And halfway through the story, I realize he's telling me history, but it is so engaging in what he is saying and how he's saying it that I didn't realize an hour and a half had gone by, right? Which kind of links to what you do for a living and what I would like to possibly do. <laughs> yeah, and it's, an, it's a fantastic medium and it has its challenges. And there are days, I'm sure you, you get this, where it's whatever you're doing, it's not landing and you're not sure why, or it's, you're very frustrated or a guest is not meeting you where you wish they would. But for all of those days, there are days where somebody did get it. Or there are days, I will never forget this, one of the best experiences I ever had was with a nine-year-old girl talking about the institution of slavery. And she raises her hand and it was, and she says, ask you about slavery. And this is as Anne Wage raised it up. She said, what do you think about slavery? And it was fascinating. The woman behind her, I don't know if they were it or not. She was in her face and she all of a sudden starts looking around like, we, we, she can't, we can't have her ask that question. I said, sure. And the same way that I was talking about unpacking with guests, I said, do you want to talk to me or Mrs. Wager? They're two different people. And the nine-year-old looked at me and she went, I want to talk to Mrs. Wager. And then I want to talk to you because I have questions for both of you. And this happens more often than not, if you give kids the benefit of the doubt. But But the coolest part about this, so we're talking about slavery. How did it make her feel? How did it make these people feel? And I am watching the woman behind her literally begin to relax her body because all of a sudden for the first time in her life, I think it had dawned on her. You could go to a cultural site and ask that question. So for every day where you're like, why? (laughs) There's another day where you go, yes, that's exactly why. Um, So I hope you do continue with it I, I, and I'm and I'm excited to talk to you more when I get the second so excited. um yeah. I about this is gonna I have about a year left thesis work is gonna take Great. a while okay. but um kind of where I'm landing at too is uh cultural resource management so CRM. yes but then I also want to work in tourism oh, so love it. I want to work at uh towns that like are cities and historical districts that need to be uh, re-innovated and bringing mm-hmm. money back into it, bringing the tourism back into it, well, building up tours, like doing something like that. <laughs> I love that. I, I, and actually that's, that's what my husband does. My husband um, uh, works for um, a 19th century history company. That's it's history and it's tourism. And I think both oh, wow. of those two things are really interlocked. And sometimes People don't want to say that they are. It's like, oh, that's ugly that we need tourism to talk about history. But the reality is they're connected, right? Tourism is the leading, like the leading economic boom. And every, like whenever a town does a tour, like a tourist renovation, yeah, they start surviving again. So, right. And they're connected. And if you can find a way to get history and tourism connected meaningfully, yeah, that's when it's a really great management of cultural resources, right? And how you allocate those resources. For what I've been looking at is, I kind of think that I'm going to have to start my own company. To- <laughs> I love it. Because be great. there hasn't really been anything that I've been looking at besides small um, 501-3C um, mm. organizations. Like, yeah, yes. Right here. Uh, but they're so small. They're only for small cities. And I want it to be more of a consulting firm where I can go out and save towns, like save yeah. towns and stuff. Because it's a lot that's happening out here, especially my hometown. So. Yeah. And, and I don't think I'd fully appreciate it. I was out in California for the first time last week. It's such a large state. Oh, it's huge. It's, so, it's vast. And so of course, you know, 
region to region, I'd imagine, is also vastly different in light of that. Especially Southern California to Northern California, we're yeah. just completely different. And we can four states and really be okay, but that's never going to happen. Right. So, so the question then arises of how do I, with the state of California, with tourism and history and how we process and think about history, how do I connect all that? Sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> okay, I love dogs. Um, uh, well, I'm originally from Montana, so my hometown, oh, wow. uh, Butte, Montana, and yeah. it's the largest historical district in the United States. So it combines with Anaconda and Butte. And um, what kind of puppy do you have? Sorry, I have an Australian Shepherd. This oh is, my goodness! We're just this is Benny. Oh, there he goes. Hi, Hi Benny. Hi, buddy. So cute. I take my charger into the other room. He keeps trying to, he doesn't, I'm sorry. I apologize. He keeps trying to give me toys. <laughs> I have to explain to him that mom can't play with him right now. <laughs> oh, so cute. Uh, it's all good. Like, so my hometown, it's, you go to Uptown Butte and there's still buildings that are original from when Butte was a boom town. Yeah. Queen Anne's from the turn of the 18th, 19th century. Gorgeous yeah. areas. And they have a tour, but it's so bad. I went on it and it's just one oh. guy. Who takes oh, I understand that. And he's monotone and he doesn't get you involved. And like, he doesn't involve the cultural parameters. He doesn't involve the social economics that used to go on in view. Right. The different cultures that used to be sectioned, like, and it just hurt my heart. I was like, this is, I want to go back because it's a dying town too. So, right. So like, how do I get, how do I change this for the better that ultimately will also improve tourism, mm -hmm. but at its core too, you're talking about how do I engage people and connect them and make them engaged and also talk about things intersectionally mm -hmm. and, and talk about history um, dynamically, right? How do I bring a tour? I, I would love to bring a tour plan there and right. maybe have, because I feel like people even dressing up like being the inner and bring actors and dressing them up you kind of bring people out of 21st century and you bring them to the time period that you want yeah even if yeah. you're walking around and there's cars zooming around or whatever you still have that time period right and so you have to prepare people accordingly for that too yeah. right so i i definitely i definitely agree with you on that and i it, it and it's a challenge right it, because to be honest with you, especially in the country that we live in, we have a lot of amazing history, but not always the resources that are allocated to cultural sites that they should be. And also, um, you know, uh, environmental sites too. And we're so, too. Right, so, you know, on the one hand, I can see that, you know, it's, I'm so glad this gentleman's enthusiastic enough to give a tour. On the other hand, it's like, but I wanna help, but I wanna make sure. <laughs> You have guidelines, not just for how to interpret, but what you're interpreting and how those two things fit together. You can have accurate history that's also dynamic. You and just have to figure out how to make them merge. Yeah, that bring people in. And that's, yes. I feel yes. like that's what we both like is being able to tell that story, but having them be brought in to, so that we know that they're understanding it. Right. Because if you understand it, then you've connected to it. And if you've connected to it, and I'm talking about something that's relevant and universal, you may walk away with something different than I or the person standing next to you would have, but you still walked away caring, mm -hmm. right? And making a connection. Yeah. All right, Nicole, I feel like I'm talking your ear off. No, this is fantastic. I'm so excited. I, to meet I love you. it. I, this may not transfer to a podcast, but do you want to see what I'm wearing? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. okay. 
So I actually, just so you know, talking about accuracy and getting uh-huh. questions from guests, I kept getting asked questions of how is stuff made? And I was like, mm, make your fact that I could, yeah, so I do make my own clothes. Okay. Um, because for me, it's just saying I go to the milliner is like not a good enough excuse, right? So this is actually what I'm going to be wearing. Oh, We've no. got an 18th century capelet with a jacket underneath it, petticoat, and then there'll be a cap and this is um, breast knot and cap knots and uh-huh. then petticoat underneath. So I'll have a couple more accessories to it. That's, uh, just a, a hoop or do you wear the... I don't tend to wear a hoop because at the time of the woman I was portraying, we're moving out of side hoops and into bum rolls. But also when you look at, and you'll figure this out very quickly when I start um, interpreting in character, mm-hmm. hoops and bum rolls also are based as much as on class as what you're doing that day. So where I'm choosing as Ann Wager to meet the quote unquote, uh, you, the audience, is in a place where she would also be working and ergo have a very different um, dress for that reason. For me, yeah. I wear a hoop for uh, Eugenia Dumois. Oh, sure. Because she's a millionaire, high class. So oh, yeah. I have the hoop and um, I'm still trying to learn how to sew my own stuff. <laughs> oh, well, you can talk about that actually when oh. I get there because I, I make all of my own clothes um, by hand. That's cool. um, using 18th and 19th century millinery techniques. I am not as talented as a professional milliner. Oh my God, that's amazing. Not as, it's not as hard as you would think. Okay. Um, and I've learned a lot actually about the women I portray by understanding material culture better and, and how they're consuming okay. the clothes that they wear. So anyway, to be continued. <laughs> yes, I could talk to you for hours. This is so, so great. <laughs> love this. When um, Dr. Dim, he told me that we were going to do a podcast for our Shattuck Symposium, he showed us the thing right away, and I saw yours in Colonial Williamsburg, and interpretation, I was like, yeah, nope, this is mine. (laughs) This lady, she does what I do, and I do, right? It's the same thing. Similar. The two two other people in the class were just like, "Uh, I want it, and I was like, no, no, this is, I do this too, (laughs) so mine. I am literally so flattered right now because nine times out of 10, when I tell people what I do, if they're outside of my family and they're not in a public history or a historian uh-huh. setting, they're like, you do what? You dress up for a living and-, and Right, so yes, but no, right. So you're a dead person. Well, I mean, kind of, <laughs> you've missed the point. Well, just come see what I do. <laughs> I, I tell people that I'm just a, a tour guide slash living history interpreter. And then they're just like, I don't, yep. Sack History Museum. <laughs> right? I love that. Um, but yeah, we will definitely talk more. And it's been a delight to speak with you. Thank um, you so much. I, I hope I've been able to answer your questions. Awesome. All right, Nicole, thank you so much again. And I can't wait to see you and meet you in person. Great. I'm <laughs> excited. I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. Yeah, yeah you too. <laughs> All right. Bye. Unfortunately, the Chateau Colonial American History Symposium has been postponed until further notice because of the coronavirus. If you are interested in learning more about living history interpretation, I encourage you to check out your local living history societies, but only when it is safe to do so. Please stay safe during this pandemic. Stay indoors and pray for those individuals that are affected by this pandemic. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to like and subscribe so we can continue to bring history out of the dust and right into your hands. 
Thank you again. My name is Shelby, and remember that it's never too late to fall in love with history. Bye!